Hello everyone, welcome to Word with Dave Clay. It has been said the worst thing anyone could possibly do is nothing. If you don't do anything, you're not going to get anything out of it. Unless you might get lucky. And when it comes to mental health or behavioral health issues, uh, we probably shouldn't count on luck. Instead, we might want to give some serious consideration to not only recognizing in ourselves the need to get help when we need help, uh, places to go to receive the help that we need, but also much of what we might otherwise see as mental health issues or behavioral health issues are those that we see in others. And on the podcast today, we're going to take a serious look at, it could be both, it could be getting you help, Uh, but as the podcast, I always try to say, is intentioned, it would be to inform not only (laughs) you who might be a podcast listener who needs help, or you might know someone who needs help, and the information I supply and provide, uh, I do believe is a good source of motivation. Uh, Making good decisions, you need the knowledge base, you need the information. And if I can supply it, and along the way try to encourage some action uh, toward an adaptive end, a beneficial end, some change, uh, that's what the podcast is about, that's what I do why I do, that's what I want the podcast to be about and why I do what I do. So with that in mind, (laughs) Psychology Today, April of 2022, Treatment Therapy. How can I convince someone to go to therapy? You can't force a person to change, but you can provide support and information by Abigail Fagan. Seeing a loved one struggle with mental health issues can feel scary and overwhelming. It's natural to want to help by bringing in a professional. But while some people are open to therapy, many others are hesitant or resistant. Here's how to broach this sensitive question with purpose, care, and respect. Number one. Choose the right time. Pick a time when the person is likely to be receptive. Don't pounce as soon as they wake up or walk into the house after work. Also, make sure that you have ample time to talk and a place to speak privately. Now, the great hope would be that, once again, once more, anyone who would need mental health care, behavioral health intervention, would know it. Uh, There's this thing, however, called denial that makes it very, very difficult at times for us to face those things that otherwise we don't have an answer to. And maybe with that, we might have an answer, but the time and the resource may not be actually where It has to be, should be, we'd want it to be, in order to get the help, in order to take the solution 
and apply it in such a way that we'd get a good outcome. When someone is busy with life, when someone has many, many things that might be coming at them at any particular time that they have to attend to, though that may be in terms of stress, uh, maybe too much that has to be attended to, in that sense, some element of negligence or lack of self-care. However, you have to be cautious when you decide to have your intervention. If you should, at the end of a very, very busy day, try to approach someone about mental health care, it may seem optimal, possibly even to you, it's triggering. You see them in that state of fatigue and being worn out, maybe even burnout by all the stressors. You've watched it possibly over a period of time as they've slowly, progressively got to the place that they've gotten to in terms of being worn out, fatigued. Maybe even you've been with them as you've shared in some sort of event or trauma. Uh, you know firsthand going through it, not only slowly, progressively, but imminently. A tragedy has occurred. Something unforeseen happened, and in an instant, not that they might have already been worn out a bit, it's just overloaded them. And the obviousness of the emotional and physical pain motivates you. It's a strong motivator in you to reach out and help them. But we have to be careful because the denial or cautious in the intervention because denial, the denial is there for a reason. Denial is a defense mechanism. It is self-protective. When you don't know how to address something, when you don't have, again, the time or resource to address something, and then there is all those other things that have to be addressed, denial allows you to put whatever that is that you can't properly correct or fix at this time somewhere. It's not completely forgotten. It may be, to some extent, another psychological concept, move to that place of subconsciousness, but you have to clear the deck, as it has been said. You have to make room for, or at least preserve order. And one more thing, too much overloaded could represent just the opposite. Being unable to manage, being unable to properly address not only whatever that thing might be, situation, circumstance, person, people, places, whatever it is. If you can't put it somewhere, as with, again, denial, and that, that represents some element of defense, protection, self-care in and of itself, then it runs the risk of you falling apart or at least creating a situation, a, um, 
mechanism, something to cause you to fall apart. And that won't do any good. It might do good, but at least as you might think about it in those terms, that doesn't sound very good. And you would have to then take a moment when you may again, once more, feel like you don't have that moment to put it all back together. No one who cares about someone else who's going through something along those lines is going to want to create more problems. Disable what otherwise seems to be at least minimally so working. <laughs> Even if it does mean that in the disabling or the falling apart, there's going to be a repair. Possibly there are circumstances or situations that dictate that when you know the person's not going to be able to do it and you can see in that immediate sort of way something bad happening. They're not thinking clearly, rationally. Maybe it's substance use, uh, chemical dependency issue. Maybe it's just that you can tell the margin has become so thin you've got to stop them. But we're going to, for the sake of the podcast, presume that you're in a place of helping before it gets to them hitting bottom, as I've described it. So choosing the right time is very, very important when it comes to convincing someone to go to therapy. Pick a time when the person's likely to be receptive. Also make sure that you have ample time to talk and a place to speak privately. I think the privately part is we all have some element of self-awareness. Uh, that in, a, in, in itself can be distorted if it's not mixed with some objectivity. But we also know the people around us are not always able to see us objectively. But nobody wants to be center stage when they're having a nervous breakdown or falling apart. Do it privately, which would also seem to suggest safely, securely. How can I convince someone to go to therapy? Number two, approach the conversation with care, not judgment. When you raise the topic, begin by expressing that you want to help them because you care about them. Be descriptive about what you've observed. Ask questions and listen to their answers carefully and patiently. Identify ways that therapy could address specific concerns. Affirm that you're raising the topic because you want them to be healthy and well, says psychologist Monica Johnson. Avoid anger or judgment, both in tone and content. Anger, for example, might take the form of your stating that they're a burden or that they should have been working on their problems themselves. Approach the conversation with care, not judgment, basically means, once more, removing your motive and, and making sure that it's centered upon theirs. Empathy really does require that you relate in a personal way to whatever 
that other person is going through emotionally, most often empathy is an emotional sort of relatability. But we don't want your discomfort (laughs) or desire to help someone. And I'm going to frame that as positively as I know how to. The aspiration is genuinely, sincerely, not to manipulate, not just because somehow it's an inconvenience to you or this is creating such a hassle for you or not that narcissistic bent, it's still all about you. But when you approach the person, you have to make sure, though your concern certainly can be expressed in empathetic terms, I care about you. I watch, I see, I believe, it seems to me that you're very upset. This situation, this circumstance, this this thing that's happened has clearly hurt you. Doing this for as long as you've done this, going through what you've gone through for the last year and a half, two years, maybe a lifetime, I could see where it's harmed you physically. I want to help you. I'm concerned about you. But that has to come from a genuine concern about them. They're the center of it, not you. And though as much, again, you may have an answer, (laughs) which is, in in the case of the podcast today, get some professional help. Recognize you need professional help. Elevate their awareness as a defense, once again, denial. When you become so passionate or fervent about helping or assisting, it may come across as threatening. And if it comes from anything of a judgmental sort of perspective where you think you have the answer, or maybe clearly you do, as with the professional help, excuse me, maybe you want to go a little further and say, if I were you, I'd do this. Or when I was in a situation, again, relatability, you're trying to relate, you're trying genuinely in a positive regard sort of way, in positivity to assist, But if you begin to tell them what to do, it starts to sound like you've already come up with not only the answer, but in your judgment, in your estimation, they've not. (laughs) Which doesn't do anything but communicate or reinforce what self-communication might be taking place in them, that they're nothing but a failure. It may also inspire some degree of guilt. You should have fixed this. You're not saying that, but it comes across that way. Maybe they feel like they're the only ones that's ever had the problem, and you're just trying to assist them to know they're not, or assisting them in saying, no, you're not. I I don't want you to feel like you're the problem or the only one with a problem. But making it about them and certainly in that encouraging them to share with you if they have such a thing as a solution. Or maybe they've just been because of once more a lack of resource and time unable to approach you. 
Yes, that would be an invitation, but getting past not only the denial, but through the element of ownership, self-will, that's huge. <laughs> For after all, if you could have fixed them, you would have done that without their permission or without their choosing. But true autonomy, independence, agency, which means they have the power to fix themselves, to, with the help and assistance of others, find resources that may be missing singularly without the assistance of others. Nonetheless, they need to own it. It's part of their overcoming. It's part of their feeling validated. Feeling as if they've had the victory. And there's nothing better <laughs> to increasing self-esteem, to changing one's narrative from failure to success, than to own it. To feel like you've had some part in it, if not singularly so, you've taken the lead. Now maybe when it gets to the place where they can't, once again, it represents such the immediate or imminent threat that somebody needs to step, step in. It's life-saving, and that person can't do it for themselves. Then do it. But that should be the last thing we do. And even then, informed consent. <laughs> it's central to the ethics of counseling. Psychological counseling. Psychotherapy. We want their permission. We don't want to make anybody do something they don't really feel completely comfortable with. And we don't want it to turn into us making them. We want it to be us assisting them. And once more, more about them than us. So when it comes to convincing someone to go to therapy, not only choosing the right time, but approach the conversation with care, not judgment. Number three, couples can try the carrot and stick approach. Often, one partner leads the charge for couples therapy and must convince the other to come along, says psychologist David Woodsfellow who encourages partners to adopt an assertive approach. Use I statements rather than you statements, he suggests. State the problem and explain how your relationship would benefit from therapy. A carrot and stick framework lays out what could be gained and what could be lost. The carrot explains how your relationship would change for the better. It might sound something like this. As you know, I don't like it when you raise your voice at me. I think that if we changed the way we fought, I would feel calmer, happier, more loving. The stick, on the other hand, might sound like this. If that can't change, I'm worried that I'm going to feel, and you fill in the blank, X, more discouraged, distant, maybe hopeless. And if that's true, and if it's true, let them know 
Sometimes I worry it could lead to our splitting up. This isn't a threat, Woods Fellow says. It's informing someone of the best understanding of yourself. Once again, therapy is about empowerment, assisting, helping. Most people realize the necessity and the importance of decision-making and choices. Most people have learned through consequences, decision-making. Most people realize how to go about making a decision includes not only identifying possible solutions, but how we know whether or not any of those solutions might work or the best solution to work is by imagining the consequences. Many people realize firsthand already what a bad choice has done or is in an active current sort of dimension doing. Now, it mentions couples therapy or counseling. I'm going to change that. Relationship counseling. Just being someone, as we framed it today on the podcast, who cares about someone else and being in that position of being, of, of being called, of being a significant other, more particularly, means that you care about that individual possibly as much possibly in the same way, to the same extent, as couples. So though the article calls it couples, I'm going to just call it persons, relationships. Couples is just one variant, one version of that. It could be siblings. It could be mother-daughter. It could be parenting. It could be co-workers. It could be next-door neighbors. It could be someone you see at church or someone you see every day, even so, at work. Again. But the idea is you care about the person, which makes you a significant relationship if that other person recognizes that as more than the status quo or normal or usual casual relationship. There's an emotional investment there. But really, <laughs> that's what psychotherapy is about. It's not the same emotional investment that you would have with a significant other that you could say, I love you. <laughs> but even then, what love means what love is can mean a lot of different things. But your psychologist, your psychological counselor, your counselor, your social worker, your psychiatrist indeed can show, once again, positive regard. We call that unconditional love. And to that extent, there is, as picking up from a previous point, not only a proper alignment or proper management of that element of judgment, unconditional, but the appraisal is such that 
one cares about another, it may be even a more significant way if what that means is that there is no judgment, but only positive regard. And I'm going to say that as once more in the category of emotion or sentiment. You can maybe call that, once again, love. It's not the same, but maybe it's better. <laughs> because whether that person who's in psychotherapy, or even so as you might be attempting to help someone to understand the need to go to therapy out of concern and care. That's possibly as close to unconditional love as you can get. Carl Rogers was the first to identify the need in context of establishing rapport of not only empathy, perspective-taking, more thought-oriented relatability, but this notion of leading with unconditional positive regard, which is once more synonymous, for the sake of our podcast today, with the idea of unconditional love. If that's not there, you're not going to likely earn the trust sufficient to not only fulfill the need for there to be significance in the relationship, as then would lead to the ability to help, to influence positively, just that, positive change, but also just that, within a positive context. The person can't fail except they get back to my very first point today. The worst thing they could do is quit. But in essence, if you haven't already made that association, denial is essentially going to render you, if you stay in it, quitting. <laughs> You're not going to attend to it. You're not going to do anything if you don't admit or acknowledge. You may be reactive because you have to. You may occasionally have to do something, but even then, that's not the best motive. It's not with the best resource in place, assistance in place. And really, it kind of suggests you really don't love yourself. We've already disclosed that. It's very difficult to see yourself accurately. But maybe what we're also saying is genuine positive regard and unconditional love has to include objectivity. You are not going to be able to love yourself out of subjectivity or phenomenologically or only out of yourself. Why? For a lot of reasons, the biggest of which, though, would be you know you. You've already come to the conclusion you can't do this. But when I look at you, and I say something along this line, not only can you do this, but you got this, which is what we like to say seemingly these days, it means a bit more. It's affirmation in the best of ways, but if I'm also skilled as a professional, I know the ins and outs of not only change, but many of the problems you may be facing, trust me. 
We'll take a look at the consequences, but once more, it gets back to informed consent. I'm going to tell you everything so that you can make a decision, at least everything that I can be aware of, everything that I am aware of, everything that you've told me that I've seen, that I've observed, and I'm going to base it on a lot of research. It's going to be what we call in the business evidence-based journal studies reported, (laughs) observations made, research paradigms established as much with that validity, reliability established. It's science in its best and empiricism in its best representation. But not only what I bring to the table but what we're going to do in the counseling session with our psychological counseling. It's going to be held to that same standard. But it's you that needs to make the decision and choice because I want you to get the full benefit of not only the validation, as I mentioned earlier, but refining That skill set, reclaiming that skill set, knowing you have the power, the resource inside of you, and how to apply that hypothetical deductive model of problem solving that does all those things, that makes it empirically sound, that makes it valid and reliable, so that we can say, yes, We're pretty sure, as much as anybody could be, even in science, for all that we know, all that we see, we've established through trial and error. This is what happens when you do this. Now, that may sound a bit complicated for significant relationships outside of psychotherapy, but you could do that. If you're a mother and you're speaking to a child or an adolescent or even an adult child or a father or a husband speaking to a wife or a partner to a partner or a wife to a wife or however you'd want to describe it, it's a significant relationship. We should all lead with this. (laughs) We should all be as scientific empirical as not only possible, but we really need to know what that is about. I want to take a moment to remind you, my podcast listener, that you're listening to Word with Dave Clay, and I am truly glad you're here. How can I convince someone to go to therapy? By Abigail Fagan. One, choose the right time. Two, approach the conversation with care, not judgment. Three, couples can try the carrot and stick approach or in relationship terms, all of us need to be able to see the end as it would be consequences, as it would be outcomes, and use the potency of that as a motivator. But continuing, number four. Be aware of common fears and misconceptions. 
There are several common reasons why people refuse to see a therapist, explains clinical psychologist Lauren Soro. These include, it costs too much. I don't have time. I'd rather talk to my friends. I saw a psychologist once and it didn't help. What good is talking going to do? I feel weird, I feel weird talking about this stuff to a stranger. Therapists don't say anything. They just sit there and judge you. Or therapists really don't care about you. They do it for the money. It's reasonable for people to have concerns about therapy. Don't shut their fears down. Validate their concerns before addressing them. Do some research ahead of time so that you can respond effectively. For example, if your loved one is concerned about privacy, explain that all information patients share is strictly confidential, which it is, unless someone is in immediate danger, which we've already suggested. The further you go into the imminent danger risk, we disclose, I disclosed, professionally, ethically, informed consent for all core providers should be to disclose. If you can't make a good judgment for whatever reason when it comes to life or death, I have to step in and make that judgment. But when someone steps in and begins to make those judgments for you, then they also represent a loss of independence, autonomy, agency. And once more, the greatest thing to celebrate, at least for me, as I conduct that relationship the professional one in psychological counseling terms, is I want to empower you. I want you to be the star. I want you to know you, when you exit the counseling, the psychotherapy experience, that you've gained something. Not only skills, not only knowledge, but experientially I want you to leave feeling stronger. Whatever that is to translate that to in more thought sort of terms, believing that you're stronger and in that, believing in yourself. If the person doesn't believe that therapists really care, explain that the process works best when the therapist and client forge a positive relationship and understand each other over time. And that gets me back to Carl Rogers and the idea of rapport. And the notion, though I've not said it quite this way, is that you don't have any permission to influence the other person in any way, shape, or form to the positive, which would then be turned to the adaptive, unless you also prove to them that you care about them. How you prove that is through empathy, through positive regard. It has nothing to do monetarily with the transaction. It has nothing to do with professional versus non-professional 
Again, for all the obvious reasons, the article is turned toward encouraging someone to seek professional help. But it, I, I hope I've made it clear that doesn't diminish the, the reality that you don't have to have a psychotherapist to get better. You just have to have individuals who think like one, who practice these things. And realizing, once more, all of us are going to come at this from a subjective sort of angle. And it's hard to fully remove that from the psychotherapy. And with that, because the psychotherapist themselves is a person. They have experiences. They have beliefs. But we do everything we can to table ours. Subjectivity destroys science. Because what that means is I've already come to a conclusion or I'm so limited in my perspective. Maybe the conclusions I've come to are faulty ones. But I'm already looking to see something, find something. So much so that when the evidence suggests otherwise, the consequences as we've been speaking about them in today's podcast, I myself, unless I am really, really paying attention to my own emotions and thoughts, mine, so that I might remove them in the proper way so that I can then properly attend to yours without that risk of corruption. I've learned that. I've been taught that. (laughs) So it does make me a bit different than just your friends. But once again... Whether you call it genuine positive regard or unconditional love, it's a sincere, genuine care for people. But that's no different than I would want to believe any health profession or healthcare profession. Why would anyone, or or just any kind of service-oriented profession, why would you get into it? Why would you do it? if you didn't want to help others, except for the money, and then you can pretty much tell who's really doing it, and for what reason, or out of what reason that person's doing it, by the outcomes, unless you're James Bond, or a sociopath. And it's pretty hard to imagine that anybody could just be a machine. Suppose... We probably encounter them every day. Suppose we probably are not intimately attached to them in that significant other sort of way. Suppose that if we were, hopefully we'd be able to see it long before it costs us in these dimensions. A lot of supposition. But they are out there. You should be able to figure that out pretty early on. Except there'd be a blind spot, which really... Another way of describing denial. There's something about you subjectively that makes it difficult for you to see not only yourself, but maybe does put you at some vulnerability of risk or risk of being manipulated by others. But that's also part of the ethics of it all. My job is to not exploit your weaknesses even if it were to be to get you better or functioning better. It's so that you would get better. You would be the best person. Abraham Maslow, or you would then achieve self-actualization, all that you can be.
And I think that's a pretty good thing. How can I convince someone to go to therapy? Choose the right time. Approach the conversation with care, not judgment. Couples can try the carrot sick approach. But also be aware of common fears and misconceptions. All of these things that I read a moment ago, from it costs too much to I saw a psychologist once, I like that one, and it didn't help, or what good is talking going to do? Therapists don't say anything. They just sit there and judge you. Those are common misperceptions. There's probably some truth, but it's, again, subjective. It's not all the facts. There's a lot of screening and filtering. For instance, if they didn't help, it's possible that you were in a place that they couldn't help, or maybe you didn't give it, as they say, a chance to be of assistance. And it's true. There's... Some therapists that believe all they need to do is show genuine positive regard, reflective listening, kind of paraphrase and reflect back to you. It's a person-centered sort of approach, the Carl Rogers model of therapy. And they don't say much. Actually, psychoanalysis doesn't include a lot of talk. It includes probably more than just genuine positive regard. But it's more strategic, more calculated, more insight-oriented. It includes a lot of taking data in. Observation, again, empiricism at its best. It's a scientific model. But for those therapists who just look at you and really don't contribute, I could see why you might think that. But just understand why they're not saying anything. It may be part of their training it may be within the context of their evidence-based, researched, theoretical model. It has an end purpose. You just may not have gotten there yet. The strategic moment may not have yet come. Number five. How can I convince someone to go to therapy? Share your own experience. Put simply, show, don't tell. Rather than lecture the person about the value of therapy, share how it has helped you. This helps to destigmatize therapy by moving the focus away from something being wrong to an experience that's normal, natural, and that others have navigated. Individual psychotherapy... The idea that even so, as I'm representing a relationship as your psychological counselor, I'm offering a paradigm, I'm still doing the necessary parts of being empathetic and validating not only your feelings, but trying to, in a relatable sort of way, understand your thoughts. Be a mirror, even, to help you better understand your feelings and thoughts. I'm modeling a relationship. Interpersonal psychotherapy models a relationship. So even as much the article is encouraging an individual who maybe isn't the professional, who's trying to encourage someone to see the professional, that significant other role outside of the professional 
to share their own experiences. You don't have to go to psychotherapy, but you have to practice what you preach. You have to evidence it, show it in some way. You can't be a hypocrite. That's the great risk of being judgmental. You may have found an answer for yourself, and maybe it's an answer that others could benefit from, and maybe sharing that with another is good, the right thing to do. But there's too much of a risk that they're not you because they're an individual, just like you are. And though you try to take it all in, you still may not see it. You may not know of all of it because they're not going to tell you everything either. <laughs> just like sometimes people have to trust not only the therapist, not only what they're seeing after several conversations, we call sessions, but really what we're exampling is a process of how in context of relationship, people go through various stages that all are important or integral to change. We model the process. It's not just the relationship. But as a friend does with a friend, again, a parent may do with the child, a husband with the wife, neighbor to neighbor, if we live our life with some sense of what is important, what represents adaptability in terms of not only relationship, but all that relationship brings, which is adaptability. We do better when we study it together. We do better when there's a multitude of opinions and that's formed the basis of the council. We do better when we support one another with positivity, when we remove excess judgment, when we attempt to be objective and look at the consequences rather than forecasting what's going to happen before it happens. Because, <laughs> you know, even as a therapist, I've discovered sometimes what I thought was going to happen, it was a thesis, <laughs> it didn't happen. Because there's other factors that aren't always accessible to us outside of our immediate sphere of measurement. Unbeknownst to us, maybe me, the psychotherapist, but also the patient who comes in to see me. But if we're true to the process, and the process is just that, empiricism, scientific methodology, Science itself, if it's constructed, why are we not going to then come up with answers that's going to be beneficial to all of us? And some of those are truisms. There are certain things about being healthy that all of us should do. <laughs> For instance, don't live in denial. And once more, things get worse if you do nothing. The worst possible thing you could do is to do nothing. How can I convince someone to go to therapy? Choose the right time. Don't be judgmental. Look at the consequences. Point that out. Help an individual. Motivational interviewing is what we call that. See how that's going to work for them. <laughs> well, if you do that... How's that going to work? Or if you've done that, did that work for you? 
Be aware of common fears and misconceptions. <laughs> Therapists do say things. They do care. Example. Maybe through specific personal testimony, but more so, don't be a hypocrite. Practice what you preach. Your own experiences of adaptability with life or within life. Number six, offer to help with logistics. Finding a therapist can be time-consuming, and tasks like this can feel especially daunting for those struggling with stress, anxiety, or depression. Offer to help with logistics, such as making a list of therapists who take their insurance or driving them to an in-person appointment. Some may appreciate such help, while others may prefer to do it all themselves, which is not, not appreciating help. It's just agency and independence, autonomy. Follow their lead. Logistics, time and resources. Logistics, sad to say. Who's going to subsidize the project? Professionals? do operate on a fee-for-service basis. That's how they make a living. That's how they pay their college loans off or how they pay for their education in the first place. That's why they can spend their life assisting you because you help them take care of all of their needs. So they're not out there necessarily doing maybe the same thing you're doing or they have the luxury, if you want to call it that, of being able to focus on you. Even driving someone to an in-person appointment or going online and identifying what providers are available. Asking people, have you ever known somebody who's gone to therapy and did it work and who do you recommend? Or All of that's logistics. We need help in that physical dimension as much as we might in emotional or psychological sort of dimension. Offer to help. That assists an individual to see past all that that might represent barriers to treatment. And that essentially is something that is within the professional context as well. I'm oftentimes much more inclined to focus at least as much energy on removing barriers as I am giving anything, which presumes implicit in every situation, every individual is the resource, resources needed to fix themselves. The process itself is self-correcting. I just have to be true and faithful to it. I don't need to become a barrier. You would not want to become a barrier. Helping someone with logistics, not only psychologically are barriers removed, but it removes the physical barriers. How can I convince someone to go to therapy by Abigail Fagan? Number seven, know when to stop. You can't force someone to go to therapy, and it probably won't be effective if the person doesn't want to change. 
If someone rejects a suggestion, what comes next will depend on your connection and the context. If the relationship is too damaging for you to continue, you may have to decide to set some boundaries or perhaps end it altogether. But if the person will continue to be in your life, significant other, recognize when it's time to set the suggestion aside. Once you've done what you can by offering encouragement and information, the person has to be the one to make the decision to accept help. You want to preserve your relationship with this person. Soro says, you don't want to become oppositional if you could help. Being opposed to therapy now doesn't necessarily mean being opposed to therapy or to it forever. Sometimes a transition or stressor shifts people's perspective. Having discussed therapy before may propel them forward when the time comes. You may have to throw a series of breadcrumbs, Johnson says, and just see where it takes you. For me, it all comes back Again, the process. This is all part of the process. And as much as you may not have anything to say about the process, because that's the way it is, it always works. It is definable with stages. Denial, interestingly enough, is one of those early stages. So would be strong emotional reactions. <laughs> so would be working through, thinking about solutions. So would be eventually closure. And with that, not only an incorporation of all that's been learned into one's sense of self, character, virtue, but more so that validation piece. It should make them stronger. But for every person in process, there needs to be someone who they can in relationship with work off of. It's just the way it works. It's all about relationship. Everything in life is about two things coming together with an outcome. The process dictates the outcome. Sometimes it's what we thought it would be. Sometimes it's not. If it doesn't work, then at least you've been part of a process. It doesn't mean that it didn't work. It just means that maybe it's not the end. Somebody else gets to finish the work. <laughs> maybe you as the non-professional get to set everything up for the professional to come in and says, oh, well, I can see you've been working on this and now all I've got to do is take credit for it. I won't do that. I identify as much as the end as I do the beginning, or as much in the beginning as I do the end, the resources. I like to consolidate and bring the experience together for the sake of closure. I like to remind the person they may not need me. The most efficacious way to do all this is to do it within your support system of significant others. And the only reason that I sometimes, as the counselor, psychotherapist, get involved is because 
for whatever reason, you as well as your significant others maybe aren't quite there yet. Developmentally, you're not quite there yet. Maybe there's been setbacks. Maybe you're regressive in some ways, but you're not quite there now. But I give you that opportunity, and if you've been there before, then it is really reclaiming. It's not even claiming if you've not been there, then it is that idea of educating and teaching and facilitating. Skill set growth, narrative growth, paradigm growth, what your life's meaning and purpose is and how all this fits into it, but more validation. Self-esteem, self-worth, self-actualization. All of that's self-care. All of that is self-care. How can I convince someone to go to therapy? By Abigail Fagan. You can't force a person to change, but you can provide support and information. Obviously. <laughs> All these points are true. They're valid. That's why we like to go to psychology today because they do that. They only publish reports that have at least met their standard of evidence-based research. But it's done in a more reader-friendly or listener-friendly sort of presentation. And it's easier for us in that way to wrap our head around without all the un Maybe for us, not necessarily for the sake of research, statistics <laughs> go with it. Except the most basic ones. Establishing validity and reliability is what I'm speaking to. People have to make the decision to accept help on their own. But it's in that same way that I do once more the podcast. I don't want to ever force anybody into therapy... But if I can provide you information, if I can provide you support, even if it's along the lines of the podcast, I want to do that. Which is the reason why we do it and why I'm going to never miss the opportunity to not only thank you for joining me on Word with Dave Clay, but I'd like to have you come back. And if not for you, which I think is probably something all of us might be able to benefit from, but I am confident there's people in your life that don't listen to the podcast that it could be good for them. And some of them might need professional help. And this gives you the information that you can pass on to them, or if it happens to be you who's listening, you know a little bit more. And hopefully that'll, again, in that spirit of motivation, encourage you. Go ahead and take action. And don't live in denial. The worst thing you can possibly do is nothing. So once again, you're listening to Word with Dave Clay. And I want to invite you back to our next podcast. But in the meantime, I want to wish you both health as well as good mental health. Thanks.